Hello, and welcome to Our Future in Space. My name is Jeffrey Greenblatt, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Ward. How's it going, Eric? It's going very well. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. We're joined by Dennis Gattens. He's the founder and CEO of LeoCloud. Our Future in Space, brought to you by Orbital Assembly, with your hosts, Dr. Jeff Greenblatt and Eric Ward. Dennis founded LeoCloud to bring to market the first space-hardened, scalable, multi-cloud infrastructure as a service, or IaaS. Prior to forming LeoCloud, Dennis was the chief commercial officer for Cloud Constellation Corporation, where he had global responsibilities for sales, marketing, channel management, and strategic alliances. With 35 years of experience in terrestrial, avionics, and space-based technologies, solutions, and managed services, he has a track record of bringing emerging technologies to market for managed services, working with global partners and service providers to introduce next generation solutions to their communications and cloud service offerings. So a bit of a mouthful, but a lot of great experience. <laughs> Mr. Gattens earned his BS in electrical engineering from Virginia Tech and his MBA from Radford University. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to our future in space. Well, thank you for asking me for joining. I really am looking forward to this. And um, so, mm -hmm. and thanks for that long-winded introduction, but when you start to have decades of experience, it, gets long. It kind of piles up for sure. Hey, Jeff, I want to point one thing out that a lot of people don't realize this, um, mm -hmm. but humans have been living in space continuously for over 20 years now. It's, yeah, it's, yes. it's, a, it's an amazing fact that um, that just shows how mm -hmm. engineering and a continuum of, of innovation just creates a, this capability. And now it's just, it's just taking off in the in a mm -hmm. just an exceptional disruptive way so yes yeah I, I i completely agree it's what as i've been saying it's we're kind of at an inflection point where we've really i think demonstrated that this is uh sustainable you know and mm -hmm. uh we're starting to see commercial developments take off and uh we're starting to talk about having multiple locations in space where yeah. people will be living and thinking about much larger numbers so yeah, yeah, well, speaking of that, you know, Dennis, yeah. you mentioned, multi, you know, multi-decades of experience here. How did you get into computing in space in particular? So, it, it, I, how to start? I mean, I've been in the terrestrial communications slash cloud infrastructure, uh, developing new technologies, so bringing new technologies to market uh, for many years. And as the commercial strategy began to evolve and really become a reality and driven by NASA um, with, with the responsibilities that they were handing over to SpaceX. And I began to really see that the cloud infrastructure had, was, had to, the communications of cloud infrastructure just naturally seemed like it was gonna evolve into space. It was just a, a view of mine that the advantages and capabilities that we have on earth could very, will very much going going to evolve in space and create the same benefits in space as they have on earth mm -hmm. um and that resulted in me taking making this pivot from terrestrial to space yeah yeah and and here we are and so I you're think kind of looking forward you see you know we, we've had particularly in the last 20 years a, a big evolution of of you know in it infrastructure and, and the way that we compute and share data and Communicate, you know, transact, communicate, yeah. and so what you're saying is that that looking forward, you see that the infrastructure of computing in space is going to evolve in a similar way. Is that what you're saying? Similar, yes. I, I think the communications and cloud infrastructure are going to evolve in space mm -hmm. as they have on Earth, and I think edge computing is a very good example. The benefits of edge computing are very clear. You move the the, the capability as close as possible to the sources and users of data that same value proposition applies in space, whether it's a LEO and more important and more critical as a capability as you move further away from Earth, the, the Cisco region and beyond. Mm -hmm. So that, and that was part of my, the premise uh, that I was beginning to see evolve in that um, we're, there was this rapidly evolving commercial economy in space. Um, mm -hmm. And it was going to need, the resources that we have on earth for for basically everything we do almost every minute of the day and and it, so that and that premise was what led to the me fi finding uh, the founding of uh, wheel club 
So I'm going to ask you about how you see data needs evolving in space, both you know currently and over the next few years. Ideas are powerful things. Ideas drive us to broaden our minds and help us seek truth about the universe around us. We are rogue space systems. Ideas above. Assembly is leading the way in the development of artificial gravity stations so people can live, work, and thrive in space. OAC's platforms are market category creators. They are backwards compatible with current standards, allowing for you to move from concept to production at the pace of business. To learn more, visit orbitalassembly.com. Okay, so uh, from your vantage point uh, today, um, where do you see data needs evolving over the next few years and and how do we need to evolve our in-space infrastructure and i guess infrastructure on uh on the, the surface as well to to support those those evolving needs so i think there's multiple areas i i, I look at them as commercial services r d and and then the the, the government military requirements moving forward to support na the national space defense strategy the r&d is going to evolve i think significantly in space there's already a a clear capability on space station for example today where many are many science projects r&d projects that are commercial and government and academia are, are taking place today as a matter of fact there's more demand for the national lab facilities um, on station, then um, there is availability of resources, both facility and human. So the advantages of having the ability to locally compute, run your analytics, any AI, uh, versus deriving your data, uh, R&D data, and bringing it back to Earth, uh, there's clear advantages in, in, the, the, the in terms of time, in terms of deriving results and, and moving forward in an iterative process with any kind of R&D that you're performing mm -hmm. and then you can share it then you, then you can archive it back to colleagues on earth who uh, exist within the same enterprise cloud for example so r&d is very clear uh, and that requires computing data storage and it requires communications which are rapidly evolving uh, from you know the the rather the, you know the simple circuits that have existed in space for many years to basically what looks like a layer three network in space and the question is how, to what extent that network will become, those networks will become interoperable. There's X number of communication provider players in the marketplace, there's new ones coming online. Um, if they can begin to perform interoperability, which I believe the government's going to drive them to, um, you now have the same basically global infrastructure in space as, or similar as we have on Earth. So R&D, um, the government military clearly sees the advantages of, of data fusion, and particularly deep data fusion that leads to predictive analytics in space so that their response time to any scenario um, mm -hmm. is less than the, re the available response window. And some of those windows are very, I mean, are milliseconds and will, could become mm -hmm. milliseconds. Commercial services, if a, a service provider, um, financial services can reach anywhere in the world uh, from, from space versus building infrastructure in regions of the world that are currently underserved, uh, they, they can provide a new, geographically geographically can enter new regions of the world for services, with services. All available um, with a cloud infrastructure and services that can reach anywhere on earth via um, the evolving communications infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And I apologize if that messaging is coming through. Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe you can turn it down or something. Yeah. <laughs> Not a worry. Part part of the uh, conversation, I guess. Yeah, um, he's a busy man. Go ahead. <laughs> so, well, yeah. So, you know, you, you've talked to kind of sort of hit these points. Um, you know, as we're looking at the different data needs in orbit, uh, you know, how do you see the 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 difference in in like maybe the current needs and the evolution of the needs in terms of computational power, in terms of data storage, and in terms of communication of that data. Um, are are those going to be, you know, do you think addressed in a very similar way or are there going to be sort of different needs for these different, you know, aspects of, of computing? Well, I think it's it's it needs to scale. I'll start there. If you think of a swap constrained mm -hmm. payload on a satellite, 
you need to have the densest compute and data storage possible. And then the again, the communications infrastructure comes into play is you can do one level processing at a satellite and then move that data over to a, a space station with a, a, a much higher volume, higher capacity data center. Um, we got to be. We need to be talking in terms of of the of petabytes and petaflops in in space uh, for a data center to be really effective in, my, our mm -hmm. opinion, in our opinion. And and we're on that roadmap. Yeah. Actually. So so for our listeners who who aren't already well versed in in you know no, data center design, a pet, petaflops and petabytes. So petabyte that's a. a an amount of storage, the uh, you know bytes are the data storage, right? A flop is the um, a, amount right. of computing power, right? So a petabyte and a petaflop is that you know a bit? Is that a lot? Is that like mind-bogglingly right. huge? What, what's the compared to my laptop, for instance? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well, we can, we all have terabytes today, I think, mm -hmm. on our laptops in the forty range, maybe, maybe a little bit, you know, standard, maybe yeah. higher than that. But a, a peta is um, a million. Is is a is a I think it's a million uh, gigabytes. So yes, so yeah, ten to the fifteenth. That I yeah. know that prefix. Yeah. So we're we're talking significant range mm -hmm. of capacity and, uh, and compute. Um, so those are going to be key to really enabling capabilities that um, certain users um, are, are are looking for in space. And and then you know a petaflop, um, you know, like I I think of my laptop process, like the gigabyte makes sense, right? Because like you know I have a uh, you know what is it a you know five hundred and twelve gigabyte hard drive, so you need some you know hundreds of thousands of my laptops to get a petabyte you know in a data center, but you know my my laptop runs on gigahertz, which is a different metric than flops. Is a, a petaflop? You know how does that scale? Is that similarly you know? A very large number in, in terms right. of computer There's power. A, a single server in a data in a data center rack, or a whole rack, you know, a whole room, or yeah. Um, so today's it, it's a, a server today in a data center is is, is I, I can I have to pull up some charts to give you the exact numbers, mm -hmm. but it's going to be less than a less than petaflops on a server today. Mm -hmm. um, so. We're we're talking in that range, I guess, that ballpark yeah. of, of what you would find on a server in a. Okay, all right, and that's why data center. I mean, space stations have this real opportunity to because mm -hmm. of the volume that they can allocate to a, this capability. And I mean, right. you can have, I believe, you'll have stations that will be customer specific, and some that will be specifically data centers, yeah. uh, just like yeah. we have on Earth today. I mean, mm -hmm. building data centers on Earth are just that; they're you know specific. For that purpose. Um, now, if I can ask, so if you have, so essentially the data centers, if we even call them that, that are in orbit right now are really just a handful of servers because there hasn't been very much room, but you're seeing that growing significantly. So you could imagine an entire space station with hundreds or thousands of servers starting to, still small for an Earth based data center, but starting to be significant. Um, my, my question is to be able to utilize that capability. I would imagine would need massive communications with, unless it's all happening on board, right? You have to get that data from other locations to that and then that back right. and forth to the ground. So, yeah, how, yeah, how does so, that work? So, so the communications, the infrastructure evolving into the optical domain is gonna be critical to this capability existing in space. I mean, there's no question about it. That's why uh, we've talked about this a little bit in our earlier discussions um, leading up to this podcast, that the, the architecture around in, in space has to evolve in order to support this capability, and, and the communications infrastructure ha has to come along as, as in order for this to really have true benefit and scalability in space. And it's about you're right; you got to bring high volumes of raw data to a, a, a data center, and, and you've got to have high speed communications to deliver the results to both man and machine, whether they're in space or on Earth. So. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm sorry if this isn't your area of expertise. I, I don't want to make any assumptions here, but are, are we, just to press the communications question one step further, um, is it easier to communicate uh, 
across uh, basically space to space asset communication that rather than communicating with with ground stations i mean is there an inherent um advantage to doing that let's say having a satellite that's generating huge amounts of data and there's a a data center relatively nearby in orbit, maybe in a similar altitude. Um, well, in the optical today. domain, yes. I mean, mm -hmm. optical con connectivity to Earth is weather dependent. It's that, it's mm -hmm. that simple. In space, mm -hmm. you're, it's object dependent. Free space optics, if you have anything interfering in the, in the path, then it, it will affect the, the transmission. But sure. uh, you don't have to worry about the variability of weather uh, when using free space optics in, in, in space. So there is an, I believe there's an advantage there. Um, the RF domain, the certain regions of the RF domain that um, are less, um, more tolerant to weather conditions. Um, mm -hmm. So there's always that as a backup. You can always go to um, alternative paths on to Earth based on weather conditions, but moving the data around in space is going to be more, once it's a you know pretty ubiquitous infrastructure in space, it's going to be more predictable, particularly in the optical domain. Yeah. I, I did want to go back earlier. I missed on part of the question yeah. in that. To, one of the advantages of, this, of bringing this concept to space is that there, there's, a lot, there's a lot of demand for for compute today, and it's, it's, it's constrained uh, with the current generation of compute capabilities that are used on satellites and even on station. Um, mm. The, and, and they're application specific. So you have compute technology or compute resources associated with certain sensors on a satellite, for example, or functions, um, uh, critical infrastructure functions on a station. And then they'll be dedicated to R&D projects or science. Um, when you move to the concept of a data center and a bare metal platform or bare metal server, as it's called, it becomes very flexible in that it basically can run any number of workloads associated with any number of, of applications, types of applications, and endpoints. So you now move that compute resource that's um, application-specific or interface-specific, mm -hmm. move that hardware resource basically into a centralized capability and now have a, an environment that is... Uh, designed to be flexible and evolve with the needs or uh, with that yeah. hardware interface. So you no longer have to manage all this hardware application specific, interface specific hardware. You're now managing a centralized resource and there's, there's clear advantages in that and evolving any kind of software support for those interface interfaces as well. Right. No, I get it. Centralization is key because now you're making better use of what could be a uh, um, an expensive or scarce resource and making it available for any any client to access um, on demand. Yep, yep. Um, so, please, well, say, you know. So speaking of those clients, you know, what what are the these use cases for these customers <clears throat> today, and how do you see that evolving in the you know near term and maybe the the farther term as well? Well, I think, so let's start with R&D, because I think there's a wide range of types of R&D taking place on, on uh, in space today, from everything from developing new fiber optic technology and manufacturing of fiber, developing manufacturing techniques in space, to uh, pharmaceuticals, to, to biotechnologies, um, to even cancer treatments, processes for cancer treatments to provide more granular uh, delivery of, of Cancer fighting medicine. So there's there's a pretty broad range in, in the commercial domain of of, of research today. Um, so I, I, and I think I just firmly believe it's going to evolve beyond what we we can envision today. Mm -hmm. and, um, as the and as there's a new generation of facilities that come online, such as orbital assembly, um, a new generation of of compute capability that really is so limited today in space and communications and the ability to have you know, subject matter experts in, on your facilities supporting the R&D. I, I think there's, there's huge opportunities there. Um, and for the government and military, uh, being able to run analytics and AI against uh, massive data sets that are multi-sourced and could be now, and I believe in, in the future will be sourced from anywhere on earth. And in space, huge advantages in in response and um, 
overall defense strategy advantages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if we can just jump in. I know we were going to talk about this at a certain point in the interview. Do you want to talk about the uh, JADC2 um, framework now, which I think it touches on that? I'm going to bring up a slide for our viewers. Um, maybe you can just tell us what this concept is and how, you know, uh, Leo Cloud and, and on-orbit compute in general supports this. Yeah, absolutely. So th- th- this is a, a diagram derived from some visionary diagrams of the, the JADC2 concept, the, the goals of it, which is basically to bring together all these, any, any and all silos of data into and make them accessible to any potential users of that data. Um, the advantages are that there's, there's a greater amount of, of data available to any user there's a, a richer and deeper set of, of data available for any specific situation or application. Um, so just that's the joint all domain command and control. So you now have the data being uh, that is generated by many, many sources today um, available for into a centralized um, an, an analytical capability, whether that, whoever's analytical workload it might be. So, what we do is we that we believe that data will be it will be reachable to um, the data centers in space, and we believe that you know what we're designing will clearly provide the advantage of taking advantage of of the, the just the infinite amount of data that's available relative to how mm-hmm. much is utilized today. And these many sources of data. So when you have many sources and diverse sources of data, and you have the ability to analyze it, you have deeper uh, insight, deeper results, um, and you can move and you can move much more quickly with uh, moving the insight into into action. So from our we we see the vision of JADC2 very clearly and and see very clearly how we fit into that. And how a data a commercial space station will fit into that uh, as well, and it it's a it, it, from my, my perspective, it's a great it, clearly a concept that has to evolve for uh, DoD strategy, and I think it it shows that technologies and capabilities in space have to evolve to support it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can certainly see the advantage of being able to move the large amounts of data and make it accessible faster by using in-space resources for doing the kind of analytics that you're talking about. But it seems like there's a lot of Earth-based uh, sensor data involved, at least, in, I'm going to bring that diagram back up, sorry, uh, as well. And so I guess my question is, to what extent is space central to this vision, or is it more sort of in a supporting role, but it still has a large amount of ground-based activity? Just just to understand the context. Well, I think uh, to me, it's it's as central as any capability, and because of the diverse uh, sources of data, whether they're in space or locations on, as it says, air, land, and sea, um, and if the data is sourced in a location that there's, there's the best they can do is provide communications infrastructure. Well, bringing that data back to a centralized data center in space is is an advantage because it's a basically a single hop from a satellite connection that can be mobile, can be backpacked, right? Um, and then moving that that source, the data that's sourced where wherever that location might be on Earth, on land and sea bring it back to a data center that's literally flying overhead. So there's that's that's a pretty specific example, but it becomes central to any any capability and strategy uh, that's that is highly reliable on on the, the analysis of data and and very real-time scenarios. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was going to ask you that next. So aside from the warfighting application, which is obviously super important, but clearly not, you know, the whole domain. And uh, we are, you know, interested in commercial applications. Uh, can can you give us maybe an example of something which is not defense related that would also, you know, benefit from this kind of um, uh, data synthesis and availability um, vision that you're talking about? Well, I think... Um... Everything climate. I think climate change is a is a really good example. Um, you can and and um, 
climate events, from hurricanes to earthquakes to even to fires, um, you you now have the ability to uh, collect data that's going to be remote uh, in its source and bring it back to a single location um, that is not dependent on on any Earth assets for uh, providing insight based on the data that you're sourcing. So I think th there's there's climate events that have uh, th this can bring real advantages to. Um, I think then <clears throat> this is more non-real time, but um, financial organizations are looking at climate and how it's it's impacting potential assets that are on coasts, for example, mm -hmm. Miami is a very good example. Um, and what might be the risk to the assets that they have uh, on Earth, and they're observing those assets from space. They're basically observing, you know, the the, the changing, um, basically, waterline or or shoreline as a relative to assets that they have um, investments in, or have, or own, or um, so it. Those are some examples off the top of my head, and then I always come back to R and D. I think R and D is really important, but that's that data is really developed and and originated on a station as well. So, so when we're looking at you know this this space data center, right? That that can really be a central key in a lot of data synthesis and and you know understanding you know what's happening in space and on Earth. Um, you know. I would assume that building that is going to be a bit different in space than it would on Earth. You know, I mean, the, the, one of the obvious things is you, you don't have a giant, you know, warehouse next to a hydroelectric dam where you just, you know, shove Google servers in or whatnot, like we have out here in Oregon. Um, you know, we're looking at a space station or, you know, a satellite platform. But, you know, it, in general, how does that hardware uh you know, look different in space? What are the main differences between these data centers and this, you know, computational power here on the surface versus trying to get that infrastructure up in space? Well, so it starts with the platform and I'll, I'll mention a couple of things mm -hmm. here. So the platform has to be designed to for the environment. Um, there's hardened platforms on Earth today, particularly in the edge compute domain, but you've got to harden it for the, the, the mechanical um, forces it might endure, and particularly the radiation. Um, so, it ha and our philosophy, and we're working with Raymond Space, who's our technology partner, is that you need to harden it from the silicon layer up. So mm -hmm. you're not repackaging, uh, you're designing from the lowest level possible and designing it for the environment that it's it's expected to uh, survive in uh, with high reliability and availability over extended time. Um, so so that that's the key um, design consideration is that repackaging is is risky. It's risky for multiple reasons. One, it, it's not going to be as hardened as a platform that's designed from the silicon layer up. You also when you repackage, you have some revision, you, well, not some, you lose revision control on your everything from your mm -hmm. circuit boards to the components that are in that platform. Mm -hmm. And that can be really risky. And um, the other consideration, so so now place that into a into a space station environment. So you now have a, you have, it's not, doesn't look like a server, it's not a 19 inch rack mount. It, it can be, but it, it's more form factor it's more packaged around to be as efficient with space as possible and provide the right thermal management at the same time. Mm -hmm. But it, it can be removed and replaced. And in our case, it could be, it could be, uh, it could be swapped out at the, at the blade level as well. So uh, just for our listeners or our, those who maybe can't see this visual, what we're seeing is a, a box that's roughly, um, 10 or 20 centimeters, I guess, on a side, and there's several uh, vertical slots, uh, each of those being a blade, I guess, as you're referring to them? Yes. With hardware? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's 15, I believe, 15 by 15 by 20. This this form factor, we we mm -hmm. we've baselined two form factors, one the smaller one and then a, a, a larger one. So the other consideration, so now you, you've got 
to manage to manage the life cycle of this hardware on stations or or on a satellite as well or on a facility on the surface of the moon so you do not need some local depot your <laughs> um, the depot strategies that we have on earth just aren't going to work um, although i mean there's certain cargo delivery services that are going to come online in the in the coming years that could be really interesting and um, you're not going to get next business day, but it's going to be interesting. So you have to have some local sparing uh, on a station, for example, um, right? on a satellite. But what's interesting also is that you can also technology refresh on a, on a space station. So you now have the ability to follow the technology, the innovation curve, the roadmap of technology that we we expect on Earth and hmm. move it into space on nearly the same timeline. The other consideration. I'm sorry to interrupt. So, what makes it possible to do that now, where in the past that was really not possible? I, I guess what we're saying is, in the past, you load a satellite or a spacecraft with hardware and you launch it, and you would never touch it again. And I mean, even NASA with their deep space probes, like they'll do software refreshes, but obviously there's no way to go go back and and replace the hardware, right? So, but you're saying that replacing hardware is becoming more of a possibility, even when it's not sitting on a space station because you can- Yeah, I think, I think there'll be market participants that are going to design their facilities around hardware coming and going, basically, bringing mm -hmm. new, new re research, new payloads, uh, new science to their facilities. Um, and being able to install it and, and uninstall it. Uh, that, I believe, is coming. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really interesting because that, that gets back to technology refresh, and now you can, you can refresh even on those platforms. Um, the, the other consideration is that you can have software-based resiliency where you're continuously monitoring the health and status of the hardware, and you can look for trending that leads to a decision to basically um, isolate a block of memory, for example, turn off a block of memory so it's no longer used, versus uh -huh. it being a hard failure, you you basically pull it out of service, if you mm -hmm. will. And now you, and no one knows the knows it happened from an end user perspective. Um, now you need some margin in terms of the resources available mm -hmm. for your customers, but it's also a virtualized platform. So you have some ability to oversubscribe these platforms as well. So right. that customers use it and then they, and then the resources are released. Yeah. So there's there's a great deal of flexibility associated with it, and the software updating within a you know a Linux environment within a container environment provides you the ability to continuously update the environment and the applications that are running on the platforms. Yeah, Dennis, why don't you tell us about some of the technical challenges that you see uh, as we look into uh, data centers in space? Well, so what's what's at a relatively low TRL right now? Um, I think the optical communications technologies is, is has to come along, and 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 it, I believe it is. Um, I think we're seeing really big steps forward in that, including interoperability. Um, Space Development Agency put a program in place right after the first tranche of RFPs they put out that required interoperability, and they set up an interoperability lab, which I think is just a, one of the smartest things they could have done to to move this forward, and. In my experience, bringing many technologies into the industrial world is that interoperability is, enables a market. Um, you'll, if you're not interoperable, um, you're not going to win in a marketplace, nor are you going to take good care of your customers. There's going to be issues. Um, right. I think the compute technology, the data storage technology that uh, that has been used by Raymond Space, um, some of it's their own silicon. They've proven its uh, its ability to be highly reliable, highly available in space. They have, they've got a strong space heritage with compute and data storage, and we're leveraging that. So what it really comes down to is the, the ARM technology, the RISC technologies, the, the x86 technologies, all that's the preferred platform for cloud-based services. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that, and they, they all have roadmaps. They all have technology roadmaps mm -hmm. that uh, bring greater performance, um, greater density, um, basically some some form of Moore's law uh, in play. Mm -hmm. And so, making the right decisions on that technology roadmap, uh, the technology roadmap of the key 
what is going to be a key technology processing, uh, whether it's general purpose processors, DSPs, um, uh, FPGAs, managing that roadmap and and seeing and and moving that moving the platforms along that those roadmaps, respective roadmaps, I think is going to be um, one of the challenges. But um, it's also an opportunity because you you can create bring greater capabilities on it on period over time to to the end user. I I'm sorry to interrupt uh, earlier there. Um, yeah, it just struck me, Dennis. I think um, it would be helpful to provide some context. I feel like something has shifted in the last few years, where before we kind of had a choice to either bring Earth-based compute hardware unaltered into space and then risk it failing after a short period of time because it's not radiation hardened. But fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fingers crossed. Right. Or you use rad hard technology, which is a decade behind the current, you know, commercial uh, availability, and therefore it's slow. It doesn't have. Yeah, it is. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Is is that still the case? I mean, you know that that was the case before there was as much commercial activity, but it sounds like with companies such as Ramon Space and others, uh, that it's quickly coming up the curve as the demand is increasing, and we're getting some pretty high performance machines available for for the space domain. Or, or soon will. Can can you speak to that at all? Yeah, the answer to that is basically yes. It's it's not the I wouldn't what we're seeing, and I don't want to deep dig into our technology too deeply, um, just due to um, mm -hmm. the intellectual property associated with it. But it's it's close to current generation, and it's close enough that our experience has been that we can enable the cloud service providers to be hosted on it. And that's what's key. It has to be far enough, it has to be supported technology or supported platforms from or by the cloud service providers in order for their services to run on these platforms. So it, it's definitely, I think it's, it's there. I think there's some, we're beginning to see it deploy. We're clearly going to deploy it. <laughs> um, and it, I think we've, the processing technology and, and the data storage technologies to some extent is now caught up. Um, it's mm -hmm. not going to roll out as fast as it does into on um, as, it, as technology refresh occurs on earth in data centers, but we're, we've taken that big step forward from these really old technology um, mm -hmm. platforms um, mm -hmm. into, you know, the current generation with, and by current generation, I mean, within the range so that, is supported by the cloud service providers and that that's key right so you now get advantage take advantage of, of linux-based environments microservices environments are now um available in space as they are today on earth and all the benefits associated with it right uh, that's fantastic news i mean it's it really is just about scale isn't it that when you're you're making this at one millionth the scale of earth-based technologies you're not going to have the in, uh, you know, capital investments and so on and um, uh, urgency. But I think that it sounds like that's really starting to change. I believe so. So I, I guess a question that I had was um, in terms of, uh, um, in terms of how you can refresh and maintain these platforms, particularly as they get larger in size and people are becoming more dependent on them. Hmm. Um, I guess I was just wondering if you could um, elaborate or prognosticate a little bit about the advantage of having a data server on a human-tended station as opposed to a standalone, you know, uh, system that is uh, fairly fairly remote. Are there advantages to having, you know, sort of similar to an Earth-based uh, data center, having people around to do those hot swaps or do the troubleshooting, add capacity? Um, what, what do you see as the advantage for, for that sort of platform? Well, yeah, if I let me make sure I understand. I, I think if you have a, 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 a space facility, a station that's basically a data center, that's one scenario I think you mm -hmm. were uh, speaking to. All the facilities, basically all the volume within that facility and power and thermal mm -hmm. management is dedicated to compute and data storage resources and then communications infrastructure. Um, so you now, you can build that, 
you tell me, this is your area of expertise. You can build that as big as um, possible, and you can provide just a massive amount of compute and data storage capabilities. Um, and and you can, but if there's a failure, you have to have the ability to isolate and take offline and maintain the, the level of service your customers expect. So you have to have some margin in your in your hardware, and then you have to be able to. It has it has to be such that you can visit it and and humans can uh, go on board and and base and do any repair upgrades, et cetera. So. Right. Again, your area of expertise, but it would seem that that's a less complicated platform to manage in space. No ECLIS, for example, or minimal ECLIS. You know, mm -hmm. it could have the ECLIS that I have on my boat, <laughs> for example. <laughs> Not kidding. Um, but yeah. So, so maybe it's a less complex, less expensive, less costly OpEx to maintain. But you it have wouldn't be built for yeah, dozens yeah. of people. Uh, you know, it would be sized appropriately, but but I guess your point is that you were going to need uh, hands-on at some point, and yeah. so the ability to accommodate those, even if it's occasional visits by a, a human staff um, technician, um, and it mostly runs itself, which I guess data centers on Earth kind of do, right? Like for a That's large right. data center, they have a staff of what, a, a, maybe a couple dozen people, mostly security and mostly security. <laughs> Yeah, it literally, they go, They all have wrought iron 10, 12-foot fences around them, and they have a security on site. And then whoever uses the, has their equipment hosted there, um, name the service from AT&T to Verizon to Netflix, et cetera, their technicians go on site or their third-party contractors go on site for whatever purposes needed. So very few cars out front of a data center. Um, <laughs> So in the human-rated environment, obviously, you have you have to have a subject matter expert, and, and basic technician capabilities should be relatively straightforward for uh, an SME on, on these facilities if you're swapping hardware, for example, or facilitating an update, software update from Earth, for example. Um, you can address the issues you know, near real time, basically. So. Right. I mean, that's mm -hmm. clearly an advantage than to having to wait for a service launch if you've got some hardware failure that needs replacement or robotic uh, servicing. Right? Yeah. Or, so. for example, you want to add another communication service. You want to add another antenna um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. onto a facility where if there's humans, you can. You still got to bring the, the equipment up, but different processing procedures and probably time timeline for bringing online a new communication service. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, we we are uh, we are talking our two companies, and as you hinted, you know, and our readers or our, our listeners know, Orbital Assembly is planning to build human-rated space stations to accommodate all kinds of uh, on-orbit activities, including data center, uh, you know, compute services. And so, I guess my you know my question to you is uh is is there something special about working with us that uh excites you or that you see as an advantage i mean you know it's um maybe we're just one platform of, of many possibilities but just anything you'd like to to point out about uh what we're what we're building well what i, I found unique is the your 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 well I forget, I'm not sure of the technology, but other than fundamentally centrifugal force for providing near some level of gravity um, mm -hmm. on board, I think that's that to me is going to be a, an advantage in that it's it's a lot, a lot less of a an adjustment for R&D folks that otherwise are going to be in a R&D lab on Earth or now going to an R&D lab in space. I mean, it, there, there would seem to be some real advantages there for making the environment as as close as possible to you know how we how we live on Earth, um, and it seems like you your scale is significant. I mean, it seems like you have the ability to build facilities that that provide a significant amount of resources both for humans and their and R and D facilities and for data centers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think most of the space stations being discussed are uh, expandable in some way, but we we certainly have plans to uh, 
significantly build up our scale on the on the single station level, you know, as as customer needs evolve and uh, you know change the size of our modules and so on. So you're right. There's a lot of capacity uh, potential there that we're very excited about. Um, yeah, sure. um, yeah, I was going to say so so. You know, looking forward, what kind of game-changing technologies do you see arriving the next few years, even? Well, what I've so I think we're I don't think there's any surprises in the compute and data storage. Um, I think it's going to be around the designs to um, manage the harsh environment and to thermal manage them, and so I see. So, some interesting mm -hmm. new technologies, new generations of technologies for thermal management, for example, are coming on that have literally coming. I've seen some of them coming out of the straight out of the academia into commercial um, availability. So I think that's going to be a part of the game changing here. And, and I think it not only applies to and you've seen the same with space tube technologies as well. Um, so I, I think that's going to greatly improve the the density of compute and data storage. Um, if, if the thermal management materials that are new generation, next generation are just require are just far less of, of a volume that adds to an overall packaging of the platform that adds to reliability, adds to availability. Um, mm -hmm. So we, I, to me, that's an interesting area of, of technology that's evolving rapidly. That's going to um, move the move this capability forward. Now, the real the real value or benefit of it is 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 realized when it's designed into platforms from again from the, the lowest level of design versus trying to wrap around an existing. Um, platform that might be off. Oh, when you, you're talking about like heat integration, being able to move the heat out from at that single uh, building, thermal management. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. two areas. I think uh, there's some interesting technologies for for rad hardening, um, mm -hmm. silicon that's coming online. But but it, it's not like throwing a you know a, you know a, a tarp over your outdoor furniture to keep <laughs> yeah. from sun fading. It's got to be built into the to, designed into right. these systems. So, mm -hmm. yeah, well, I mean, and it makes sense because, and just for context, like a, 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 um, a data server can consume a, a large amount of uh, electricity relative to some other uh, machinery that, that might be on orbit. And therefore you have a much denser uh, amount of uh, thermal energy that you have to get rid of compared to upper applications. If you fill the interior of a, of a spacecraft with computing, you've got many kilowatts, you know, of, of uh, thermal management that you, that you have to deal you with. Move. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You got to dissipate. Yeah. I can see that being a unique, a unique challenge, but. Yeah. And as efficiently as possible that you do that, the better for the platform itself, the volume it requires, the structure it requires around it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I think some other interest. I'm really excited about quantum technologies in general, from communications to to key uh, distribution, compute. I think I, I firmly believe that you'll see quantum technologies in space in the future. Um, and obviously, the advantages are obvious for that technology. Yeah. Um, and that's something we didn't really touch on, uh, but I wanted to get to, which is. Uh, Security, right? Cybersecurity, security of data, security of access, uh, security against attacks. Um, does I mean you can speak about quantum uh, if you if you want, but I think there's a lot of traditional uh, or conventional technologies that, that guard against that. Uh, what are the um, issues that um, that arise in terms of space-based uh, uh, computation, and how do we uh, ensure security for for your clients? So. Yeah, it's a unique challenge, and, and it's very different. Um, human intervention in a cyber situation on Earth is, you can be far more reactive uh, in, in space, not so much, not as much. Um, if, it's not a, if it's not a human right there on a console, the, the connectivity back to Earth um, re re relies on a human on Earth to diagnose it. So autonomous AI-based Capabilities are going to be key to cybersecurity in continuously monitoring 
the the network, uh, the utilization of the network, anomalous uses of a network, um, DDoS type of attacks um, that you can't wait for someone on Earth to stop. You can't wait for malware distribution to be uh, stopped by someone on Earth. It has to, the machines have to be intelligent enough to stop mm -hmm. it themselves. Um, and so, uh, to me, there's 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 not only that. There's there has to be some real strong intelligence around monitoring the network and the users and any potential bad actors, and and taking taking action inside the even loop, basically. Um, then there's there's design criteria, there's design capabilities. Um, so what I, I look, and I'm closely watching, is what the U.S. government's requiring, um, what they refer to as a cyber um, cybersecurity maturation model. <laughs> I think I'm getting this right. <laughs> certification, CCMC. It basically relies, it refers to the NIST standard for cybersecurity. Those requirements are going to be imposed upon all uh, um, suppliers of, of equipment to U.S. government DOD in, in the coming years. I forget what year it is exactly, but you will be required to adhere to the cybersecurity maturation model certification. Um, so, following that model today is, is to me, a, a key path forward, um, required path forward in order to have, you know, the processes and the technologies in place to have a baseline of capability that in the software environment you can evolve. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can evolve it rapidly. You can evolve it to react to situations or is it... Um, to me, uh, to me, there's two, well, I call them innovation curves. There's, there's the cybersecurity innovation curve, and then there's a the hacker innovation curve. Hmm. Obviously, I want to be the, uh, the cybersecurity <laughs> innovation curve on top, <laughs> yeah. staying ahead of the, the challenges. Mm -hmm. I think, to me, that's a, it just visualizes it, but it's, it's, it's really important that you think that way. So um, that, that's our approach to it. Yeah, and I was just as a follow-up going to ask, um, you know, I've often heard it claimed that uh, security in space has the potential to be inherently more, you know, inherently higher than security on Earth because of the physical remoteness of the assets. And I was just wondering if you believe that and if you can speak to that or, you know, maybe enlighten our, our listeners about the differences. Yeah, I, I believe it is. I believe there's a there's a sort of an air gap security capability that is enhanced in with resources in space. Now, you have to communicate with them, so there's your point of vulnerability is the communications infrastructure. Um, but in, that infrastructure is far less accessible in space than it is terrestrially. Um, additionally, in space, um, you're, you can isolate yourself to a single communications provider. So, for example, it's 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 a hop up to a satellite and then a hop down to a from a communication satellite that is down to a a, a satellite that's sourcing data or a a commercial space station. So there's, there's less um, infrastructure to tra to traverse. So it's um, implicitly simpler, more straightforward to monitor. Um, versus on terrestrially, we're we're an infrastructure, we're a network of networks on Earth. And so yeah. you, you can create dedicated net network infrastructure on Earth. It's, it has its challenges, uh, particularly in, depending on where your users are located and how many users you have. Or uh, So I believe there is some inherent security uh, by moving the resources and, the, and having the application to run in space. How now, critical is that said? Would yeah. would let our guard down? Absolutely not. Do we still have to mm -hmm. have significant capabilities designed in, as I mentioned, to protect yeah. the data, protect the resiliency of the infrastructure as well? That's as much as important as protecting anyone's data. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, so how, how critical is latency in all of this? Uh, it, when you're talking about space comms, uh, you know, what users and use cases does that affect the most? And, and, you know, how critical is it to get that latency as short as possible? For some users, it's very important. For some commercial services, it's going to be very important because it provides a competitive advantage. Um, mm -hmm. Or any inside the human loop decisions that, um, that have are scenario specific, for example, with certain government organizations, um, the latency is going to be absolutely critical. Um, mm -hmm. there's, there's a belief that the response window is, going to, is just going to be a continually decreasing um, time frame and everything you can do to reduce latency uh, in, the, in the beyond the millisecond, the microsecond frame just is going to be very important for successful strategies. And, and the financial, uh, financial institutions are a very good example. Um, High-speed trading, um, billions has been <laughs> billions yeah. of dollars have invested terrestrially to shave off milliseconds and fractions of milliseconds for for trading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a physical limit, right? Just because of the size of the Earth and how far away some of these satellites are, we're only talking a few hundred kilometers for low Earth. But if you're talking about a medium Earth orbit communications link, or a geo, yeah. those thousands of kilometers do add up in terms of time delay, yep. right? But yeah, and that's why moving. That's why the value proposition of edge compute. I'm going sideways a little bit here. Uh, is more is increasingly significant as humans go further away from uh, from Earth. Right. So the ultimately decisions are made on orbit, and the this, the results are sent back rather than having to send all the decision making data. Yeah, uh, in transit and, and you know on orbit or on the surface of the moon. I mean the the asteroid mm -hmm. mission is a really good example, right? I mean, what was the delay? Was it, it was a few minutes? A couple oh, minutes, I think. Did, mm -hmm. We're talking about Didymos, the, yeah. the, the impact. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure, uh, local computers would be needed and was used there, right? Mm -hmm. and all of that was autonomous. Um, yeah. yeah I mean, not relying on NASA commands for, for that last yeah, part of the mission. So before we wrap up here, anything else that we should have asked or that you'd like to tell us or our, our listeners about uh, you know, computing in space? Um, no, I thought this was great, broad coverage of the of the topic. I really appreciate it. Um, I to me, I've I've got sort of a I, I came across well, James Webb inspired this. That one of the, the scientists or leaders of that whole project, which is amazing, um, was asked a question by a reporter. So, so what do you expect to learn? And he he said. I, I basically don't know, and that's what really is going to be exciting about this. What we don't we don't know everything we're going to learn from this, and that's pretty amazing. I think there's a corollary here in that, as these capabilities build out in space, the the advantages and the benefits and the use cases are going to just expand beyond all of our expectations, um, particularly as we go further away from Earth. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. We can see a few years out, but then beyond that, it becomes a, a different mm -hmm. regime entirely. Yeah, yeah, it'll be it'll be very fun to watch. I I think so. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. I think that's all the time we have. Um, thank you to our listeners for uh, you know being part of this conversation. If you want to uh, reach out to us, you can always find us on Twitter at our future space or Facebook at our future in space, and feel free to email us at our future in space at orbitalassembly.com. So thank you for joining us. We look forward to uh, hearing from you guys as well. And if you like what we're doing at Orbital Assembly and would like to find ways to, uh, to uh, do more, feel free to reach out to us at info at our future in space. Info at orbitalassembly.com. Sorry. <laughs> info <laughs> at orbitalassembly.com. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Dennis, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Oh, so well, thank you. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Be well. And well, see you all care. next time. Bye now. 
This program represents the personal opinions of the hosts and their guests. The content, opinions, and views do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Orbital SL ignore the organizations with which any of the program participants may be affiliated. The mere appearance or promotion of this program does not constitute an endorsement by Orbital Assembly or its affiliates. Our future in space. Copyright Orbital Assembly. Dr. Jeff Greenblatt and Eric Ward. Audio and video production by Tim Alatori. Musical theme, The Last Day by Dark Blue Studio.